Hi friends, welcome to Why We Care. I'm your host Tiffen and I started this podcast because I realized that when you ask people how they can help the planet, most will say things like fly less or cycle instead of driving. But not many will say things like let leaves rot in your garden to help the soil or buy regenerative instead of conventional cotton. Most people know how to reduce their carbon footprints, but few know how to directly protect nature and biodiversity. So together in this podcast, we'll explore our relationship with the natural world and learn how we can take better care of Mother Earth in our everyday lives. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Annie Moyer. She's an amazing marine biologist, wildlife filmmaker and impact producer at the BBC. We briefly worked together on a biodiversity project before both moving on to other things, but we stayed in touch and she was one of the first people that came to mind when I started planning this podcast. We spoke about noise pollution in the oceans, how human activity is affecting whales and all other marine animals, and what we could do to reduce that impact. One of my favorite moments was when she said that she was in a workshop with a big supermarket chain and she suggested that maybe they should review their entire shipping process to avoid the whale migration routes. And um, she actually got a few funny looks, <laughs> as you would expect. Um, we also touched on the importance of starting a conversation and how different approaches to how we tell these stories are needed to reach as many people as possible. Hope you'll enjoy the conversation. Thank you for caring and sending you lots of love. Hi, Annie. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, of course. So I am a wildlife filmmaker, marine biologist, Mm -hmm. and I got into wildlife filmmaking a few years ago now for a master's at UE in Bristol, which is a master's in wildlife filmmaking in partnership with the BBC, um, which is an amazing course. It's a one-year intensive course where you learn how to use cameras and edit, and at the end of it, you make a film. Um, Yes, as I mentioned, from a marine biology background, so I've always been super passionate about the environment and telling stories there, and I think I did, I had a science background, but then I knew I wanted to go into communicating that a little bit more, so wildlife filmmaking felt like the obvious route for that. Now I'm working in the industry I've kind of niched in a little bit more as well so I work in digital which is creating social media content but also in impact which is where we take a topic and we really try and find new ways to tell that story to really reach new audiences quite often we'll work with big landmark tv programs and look at what the key issues are and then try and tap into those and tell deeper science stories and reach new audiences so Impact's a really exciting space. Um, It's a relatively new one that people are kind of trying to get their heads around. And there's lots of different ways that you can create impact, lots of different media. Um, Yeah, through through social media is kind of how I like to tell stories and more short form content, because I think it's a really exciting, you know, format that we've all kind of got used to in our everyday lives, social media, you know, we're on our phones all the time. So, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, basically just busy busy creating stories for social media mainly (laughs) great well I I love that and uh yeah I remember when I (laughs) found out um about what you did I was so impressed because yeah when I was a little girl it was my dream to be a marine biologist as well so I think that's very cool (laughs) um and yeah and so that's actually also a nice segue into my next question because I wanted to ask your view on how um I think there's a 
storytelling is really powerful and I think um yeah obviously you're doing such a great job at it but what are your thoughts on um the ways in which these stories help people feel closer to nature and I think especially with some of the um kind of subjects that you work with um I know for example you've worked with uh whales which um a lot of people love whales but at the same time they're so far from us it's even you know if you want to see a whale it takes quite a lot of <laughs> effort traveling somewhere and even so you're not sure you're going to see them or you see like a little bit of them so what are your thoughts on how these stories help how these stories can help people feel closer to nature and feel that connection and then also do you, have you found that uh, people change their behaviors once they've kind of had a better understanding of um i guess wildlife and and kind of what's at stake yeah definitely um i mean that's why i started i think i'm from leicester in the uk here and i think it's an area where i think we don't always have an immediate connection to nature i think people have got a lot of stuff going on um it's not top of people's priority quite often um you know environmental messages and and things like that so when I was living in Leicester, landlocked, loved the sea, always had as a kid, got to visit it, was very lucky enough to go visit it a lot. But I think I had this interest in these amazing places around the world. And I really wanted to bring these stories back to Leicester and bring them back to my family and friends. Yeah, you know, I'd be traveling around and think, oh, I just really want to show someone what I've just seen. So that's kind of what piqued my interest in the first place. Again, with telling the story about um, the whales, you know, it, I was aware that it was a super privileged thing to be able to go and see them. When I actually made my film, it was probably, well, humpback whales being my favorite. It was the first time I was seeing them myself in real life. So I think being able to go and capture that and then bring it back to like family and friends and the audience that I was interested in, it was super important. I think then now looking at how I make stories now in terms of digital and reaching new audiences, I think social media has a power to really make stories relevant for people a lot more than sometimes maybe the big glossy TV shows can. So I think that's what's exciting about digital filmmaking is that we do it through a platform that's a lot more candid. It's a lot more, um, you know, people can relate to it. I love working with influencers, for example, and and real people. We try and tell stories about real people because then people that have lost a bit of their connection to nature can can, can see it through someone else mm-hmm. um so you know there is absolutely space for these amazing behavior stories that inspire people and people see the wonder of the natural world but personally I like to tell that story through a person so that people can try and connect that way and then in terms of the behavior change I mean, I've not done anything so far yet that I've in my career where I've seen behavior change. I mean, I'm very lucky to work with an amazing producer, uh, series producer, sorry, Nicola Brown, who um, worked on Our Blue Planet and the work that they did and the rest of the Blue Planet 2 production team as well. You know, with the conversation with plastics, they have Mm -hmm. seen change from their storytelling and, and I look up to that, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> the holy grail of wildlife television and impact campaigns so far. And, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of behavior change that I can only aspire to create. But for me as well, I think just starting conversations in places that haven't happened yet is super important. And I think it's the start of it. Mm-hmm. Wow. I I love that. And yeah, I, I remember hearing about the impact of uh, Blue Plan. Do you, do you, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but like, do you have any indication of how because I remember 
yeah that it was really big right like it, it's pretty much what started to raise awareness of plastic pollution um, yeah 100 I, I mean I, do, I don't have any numbers sadly and I, I know they made an insane amount of content like I think mm-hmm. 700, 700 pieces of content over three wow. years and just lots of different stuff lots of different formats that just reached lots of new audiences I think plastic was the most google world uh, sorry um plastic was the most googled word in that that year or something because wow. of the- <laughs> they started so yeah. um yeah it yeah it is it is a campaign to really look up to definitely mm-hmm. that's yeah that's amazing I love that <laughs> and so moving on to A Voice Above Nature which is the film you made um as part of your um the, the project at the end of your studies right yeah. um and it's about noise pollution in the ocean could you tell us a little bit more about noise pollution and also how human activity is affecting not just whales but marine wildlife in general yeah well I studied humpback song when I was at marine I did my marine biology course Mm -hmm. and when I heard about there was a very small part of the section that was a very small part of my dissertation one paragraph about noise pollution this thing that was impacting how humpbacks were singing and how humpbacks were communicating and I was like what the heck is this like humpback song is for me one of the most beautiful sounds in the natural world in mm-hmm. the world itself um and I was like if there's something impacting that I want to know about it and I think noise pollution especially when I studied um the humpback acoustics on my marine biology course was super new in its research and still when I made the film it was as well so sound for marine mammals in particular is a primary sense that they use um it they use it to communicate to navigate to hunt um during mating sound travels four times faster in water than it does air and it's amplified as well so sound is so crucial for so many marine animals and ecosystems coral reefs are one of the loudest things in the ocean there's amazing research by Professor Steve Simpson, who looks at playing the sounds of a healthy coral reef on a degraded reef, and they they saw fish species returning to that degraded reef. Oh, that's and, wow! Yeah, they 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 come back to they come back to reefs to spawn, and so they they follow the sound of that, and it's just absolutely fascinating how important sound is. Mm-hmm. But then obviously we create so much of this noise pollution. And the way that we do that is through marine traffic, through marine construction, um, during seismic surveys or military sonar. There's lots of ways that we create noise pollution in the ocean. I think 90% of trade is transported overseas. Mm-hmm. There's 60,000 ships on the, on the oceans at any one time with 30,000 more turning over in harbors and docks. So the noise that is in this ecosystem is just is frightening and it has a really detrimental impact they've started to put those mass strandings down to noise pollution they've seen like uh, physiological and uh, physical trauma on the animals from noise pollution um but also just the idea of drowning out their sounds and drowning out the communication that they make um And I think what was really impactful and what kind of struck me first with the idea of noise pollution, and I've seen it in every single person that I talk to, is that thought of, oh, I've never thought about that before, but it makes total sense. That is always people's response. Um, So I think 
that's what meant a lot to me with the film as well in the way that I told the story was really helping people feel the issue not mm-hmm. just not just telling them about it but I wanted to make people feel it um so yeah it's a really powerful powerful topic one that's got you know a lot more research to be done on it and and it's really exciting to think that you know we could hopefully do something about it mm-hmm. and yeah that makes a lot of sense and I've had that exact same reaction when I watched the film first of all I think it was very uh, moving and touching and um, so I think the way you tell the story in a really I think engaging way but then also yeah I had no idea and I remember even um, in my previous job when we were um, I was working on the sustainability team and we were discussing oh shall we I remember we had to like send a parcel somewhere and we were like oh shall we um, ship it um, by plane which is obviously bad for the planet or by boat which is better for the planet but it will take longer but then actually hadn't even realized that it's maybe I mean it depends I guess what metrics you look at in some ways it might be less carbon emissions but then it's impacting um, biodiversity in, in all these other ways so um, yeah it, it's crazy that we, most people don't know about this um, yeah I mean, that's that's scary about the challenge that we're up against, isn't it? Like Mm -hmm. there's never there's never an easy solution. You know, you're reducing your impact in one area and Mm -hmm. then putting it on a different one. And it's I think that's the challenge that we've got with going ahead. The climate crisis, et cetera, is just finding that balance of, you know, trying to find the best solution possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to navigate because there's not one perfect solution and I think yeah it's it's definitely yeah finding a balance and maybe like a compromise but I feel like with any activity with anything we do there there is going to be an impact um on on the planet and on nature in some way and so one thing I wanted to ask as well was one of the things that really stayed with me from your film is this um number that you shared that if we stopped all human activity in or around the oceans, right? In 18 hours, there would be no more sound in the ocean, um, which I thought was insane to learn about that. Um, and it, and it, I think it was very moving and powerful to feel that it could be so close. 18 hours is not far from now and it could just happen. But then it also made me feel a bit helpless because I don't know what I as an individual can do. And I know that it's very, very, very unlikely that all human activity will stop um, at once. So my question is, but yeah, how do you respond? And I can imagine probably having worked um, on that, that you also had a similar reaction. So what, what do you think people can do and kind of how do you, yeah, how do you act on this really as an individual and then also maybe as part of a collective or, or in your job or, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think with the 18 hours thing, for me, it was definitely a hook that I wanted to hold on to because so often with conservation messaging, climate issues, you know, environmental biodiversity loss issues, we have this idea that, you know, we're, you know, we're at the very start of a massive mountain that we have to climb with a lot of things. And the idea of the fact that noise pollution in theory um, mm-hmm. could be finished in less than a day is know insane because when it comes to we've mentioned already plastics you know there is a tangible solution to plastics we can stop using plastic however plastic as an issue is going to dominate our seas for a very long time to come if not potentially forever in some form or another you know there is a massive job there to be done um but noise pollution 
if we find the right solutions could go it's the idea that like any trapped sound within the ocean would take 18 hours to dissipate and go um or trap noise as i like to say because there's good sounds and then there's bad noise mm-hmm. um, so yeah there's lots of little solutions that i came across when researching for the film um the main noise for example from a boat is actually from the cavitation of the propeller turning it's the small small bubbles that are created when the propeller turns and then they pop it's that kind of explosion of sound that is created so they're finding ways to create uh, propellers that have a larger surface area so fewer bubbles are created also by slowing down by slowing down you produce less noise pollution which is just insane because it's such an easy brilliant solution that could save fuel um Mm -hmm. it could just save so many things but we're so used to as human species wanting everything as fast as possible so whether that would ever happen or not whether boats would ever slow down I don't know so there's a lot of these big massive ideas of the solution towards noise pollution Mm -hmm. Um, and you ask what can you do you know I think for the start and I'm probably going to say this multiple times (laughs) it's about awareness to start with and and being aware of it as a problem like I say it's such a new topic of discovery well I say new it was new five years ago when I made the film it's less less new now we know a lot more about noise pollution but I think starting the conversation is the first place and to just be aware of how it impacts different sectors like you said you working in sustainability was we're trying to ship something. So thinking about that, thinking about how our everyday lives are impacted. You know, we buy fruit and veg from the other side of the planet instead of eating more seasonally, which comes from just down the road. So it's all these little things, consumerism, buying fashion from the other side of the world, everything. It all kind of does come down to these same core topics, carbon footprint and the impact on biodiversity. So um yeah I think it starts with awareness obviously you know cruise ships ferries these these kinds of things <laughs> you can maybe avoid them if you really want to try and reduce your impact on noise pollution but um you know it's there's big changes to be made the systemic changes to be made mm-hmm. for all of the the issues that the climate and the the natural world faces so it's a case of all working together to work on these solutions absolutely not one individual can be perfect is gonna one individual being perfect isn't gonna fix the planet so mm-hmm. it's it's more of a changing the system so that we have ways that you know lend themselves more to a healthy natural world if that mm-hmm. makes sense <laughs> yeah no it, it does and it's it's really interesting because I yeah, one of the reasons why I started this podcast was because I feel like a lot of people know pretty well by now how to reduce their carbon footprint. So things like flying less or cycling instead of driving. But then I think a lot of people really care about nature and wildlife, but don't really know how to have that direct imp- or like how to lower their impact. Um, and it's so that's reasons. One of the reasons why I started the podcast was to ask all these different people um what you can do specifically if you want to help nature and I love that you're saying that because in a way I had never really thought about it but it's yeah it's good to know I think that uh things like buying locally which you would do maybe from a carbon perspective actually will also um help um the whales indirectly because you don't buy something that has been uh, shipped from the other side 
the world. So that's yeah, really good to hear. I think I'm um, um, yeah. Thank you for that. Yes, no, it's a it's a fascinating thought, and you know, one of the solutions that I I went and spoke to a very big supermarket company about this issue, and was mm-hmm. really fortunate to go and talk to their fisheries department, and and that was a really exciting conversation. Um, but when I was talking about noise pollution and it didn't necessarily relate to the fisheries department, but just this supermarket brand in general, mm-hmm. I was talking about, you know, how they transport their products from one part of the world to another. And, you know, a lot of that time they'll go the quickest way possible because of the produce on board, which totally makes sense. We also don't we don't want food waste. So I, I get that. But it was kind of I think with the solutions for something like noise pollution or with lots of the natural world biodiversity crisis issues. I think it's really thinking back to nature for the solutions. And, you know, I even crazily suggested to them that like, you know, they travel at years when the whales aren't migrating that way and they go around the whale migrations if possible. And they kind of looked at me a bit like, like I'd said something really totally silly. Um, (laughs) But I was like, you know, naturally, we have to work a little bit more less straight line you know Mm -hmm. there's not as many straight lines in nature as we make out there are so let's let's go around the whale migrations let's avoid them that way Mm -hmm. um and I don't know I feel like the solutions just need us to really connect back to nature that's Mm -hmm. the start that's the start of all of it I think yeah I I think that makes a lot of sense and I love that you know what you're saying is that it's not going to happen that we completely stop you know shipping things around the world and we've just evolved in that way and society has developed in that way that we've gotten used to this and I love that you're suggesting that rather than obviously the idea would be to stop completely but because that's not possible we can work around it and maybe just slow down and kind of go back to being a bit more harmonious with nature and kind of finding that compromise and that um yeah I guess healthier balance right absolutely totally yeah, wow, I love that. It's very inspiring and it fills me with hope. So <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. hope's good, hope's good. <laughs> yeah, well, I have another question, but maybe we've covered this already, but do you have any kind of other advice on um, maybe more, because we've talked a lot about um, marine wildlife and oceans. Do you have any other kind of quick, uh, not quick, but like tips that on, on things that people can do to help nature and biodiversity in their everyday lives or like things that you do um specifically with that in mind yeah I I, I do and I, and I know that there's the big elephant in the room about the the larger things that need to happen and this mm-hmm. whole not always you know blaming it on the individual I get that um there's a lot that needs to be done and I'm hoping it will slowly happen but mm-hmm going back to the individual and what people can do and and I think sounds I mean I've kind of already said it before already but it sounds silly but having conversations there was mm. an amazing George Monbiot article about how we don't like to be the person that makes everyone uncomfortable we don't want to start yeah. these uncomfortable conversations we've almost got this inherent want to like be the nice person in the room and not to make people feel awkward and point bad things out and I am constantly being kicked under the dinner table back home for start, <laughs> you know, for bringing up climate change. And I've got members of my family that go, Annie, we don't want to be preached to. Not tonight. Not on a <laughs> not on a Tuesday night. Please don't preach to us. And I get it. And I and I and I understand that. But equally, you know, it is all of our problems. And mm-hmm. we've got we've got to get more uncomfortable with having these conversations because it's not something that's, you know, a thousand years down the line. Like this is now five 
10 years down the line for us in the UK for people yeah. around the globe this is already happening like yeah. on a very serious scale and you know we're in a western privileged part of the world that can bury their heads in the sand a little bit more but you know we need to really seriously start thinking wider than that and looking at how people are already being impacted um so again i guess it's just saying you know have these conversations because if feeling uncomfortable at the dinner table like that's that's not an uncomfort for what people around the world are already going through and what you know what will happen later down the line as well for us so mm-hmm. yeah i think i think just talking talking mm-hmm. to people about it making it more you know part of the everyday language you know we've got more and more this conversation around eco-anxiety for example you know there's yeah. there's terms and there's phrases to do with the climate crisis that are more and more coming into like our language and our everyday lives and I think that can only be a good thing but yeah we've got to, got to see that we've got to start doing things really I, I love that and it's yeah it's such a kind of clear action point and also pretty easy well yeah as you're saying it's quite uncomfortable but also it just I, I guess also the more you do it, the more used you get uh, to doing it and then the less kind of uncomf- uncomfortable it gets for you and then it will still be uncomfortable for people around you, but you'll be used to doing it. And so you'll, yeah, just keep doing it and hopefully. Totally yeah. I've, had a, I've had a few conversations recently and I'm used to people stopping me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd get like maybe like 10 minutes into a preachy conversation uh-huh. and then I kind of go, oh, I can stop. And they're going like, no, no, I'm interested really. And- <laughs> Oh, I'm just used to people stopping me by now. So <laughs> people do want to know. People are, yeah. you know, people. We think that everyone is scared of this conversation, but you know, people want to know how they can change things. They've just not had the tools to do it, and people, you know, haven't been invited into the conversation yet. So I think having the conversations with people that you don't expect it. Also, not sitting within like an echo chamber of the same types of people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. You know, go back home and I talk to my family and friends about it and I think that's really really important Mm -hmm. yeah and I think kind of circling back to what we were saying at the beginning around storytelling and I think there's multiple ways of doing this and if you do it from a place of love and empathy and just with lots of respect and kindness then well some people might not be receptive but then the majority of people I guess would be receptive and and engaged right but that's like telling different types of stories is really exciting and I had this mm-hmm. very conversation with someone a family friend from back home a couple of weeks ago I said you know like what kind of storytelling would you like would you like me to tell you that there's hope and you know be a bit gentle with the storytelling or do you want the cold hard facts and to be a bit scared and she was like genuinely personally I would respond if I was scared to something mm-hmm. and that's so different for so many other people yeah. so many people no no give me hope I I don't want to be scared otherwise I'll like run away from it but she was like no give me the hard facts so I think we've got to be prepared to tell different types of stories Mm -hmm. because we don't all we don't all respond in different ways we all digest content differently so you know what works for you might work differently for me or what might work differently for someone else so that's interesting and it's and it's exciting actually yeah, that, that's such a good point. And I think it's also, people also go through different phases, right? Like I know for me at the beginning, I was here for all the kind of hard um, facts and, and truth because I feel like I needed to learn. But now I am I feel like I'm much more 
receptive to the kind of more hopeful positive stories as well but I had to go through that phase as well and so I think it's it's really interesting what you're saying about having almost yeah different ways of approaching what is ultimately the same message and the same story but just adapting it so that as many people as possible engage with it and then yeah take action and just a final quick thought on that and what's I just think so important is you know, representation within a team that you work. And that is, mm. you know, the number one thing. And I'm talking representation in, in all matters, mm-hmm. you know, that have people that can authentically speak on different issues, speak to different communities and how receptive they might be to messaging. Like it starts with the team that you're working and who's telling those stories and whose stories being told. And I think before we have better representation within wildlife conservation messaging we're not going to get anywhere because at the moment it it does still feel very echo chamber and you know there's there's new audiences to reach but you've got to do it through you know inclusive storytelling 100 mm-hmm. percent. yeah yeah that's such a such an important point as well thank you for raising that um another question i had was uh what was the moment you started um or realized you cared about the environment did you have any type of light bulb uh, moment or experience yeah it's interesting i i don't really think there was a moment i think when i've obviously always been interested in the oceans and wanted to do marine biology and study that and actually the as far as i remember i mean it was ugh, 12 years ago now which is terrifying (laughs) it was a long time ago since I was at uni maybe not 12 years I'm doing myself (laughs) 10 years since I started uni there we go that makes me feel better but um I don't think the climate crisis or climate change was massively on our agenda on marine biology even then so it is really only in the last five six years that this environmental issue being an environmentalist has been you know, at least on my radar, you know, I know lots of people that have been environmentalists for years and years, but I, but for me, it's, it's really been in, since actually doing the masters, since getting into wildlife filmmaking, since getting into communicating it, that I've, it has really ramped up. So yeah, I think it's probably a gradual thing. Um, also, I know it sounds strange since having a dog, I think oh. now, you know when like you've got this little like life that you need yeah. to protect and that you need to look after and you know <laughs> you be on social media you know animals suffering and that kind of thing I just I can't live with the idea that that's happening all over the world because of the mm-hmm. things that we're doing so I've just I'd say it's in the last like few years definitely that I think it's it's slowly slowly ramped up and just the more I'm exposed to it as well it's amazing studying you know, working on these films because you learn so much at the same time. And I think that's been really great. Oh, wow. I love that. <laughs> um, and, and another question um, off the back of that maybe is, um, do you manage to feel connected to nature in your everyday life? And if so, how? Do you have any kind of daily practices or how do you, yeah, maintain that connection in a way? Again, look, being lucky enough to have a dog. Uh-huh. Uh, I have to <laughs> two three times a day which gets me a, a there's a, a really beautiful old disused cemetery here that you can walk your dogs around which is mm-hmm. really a really beautiful space very peaceful lots of green trees Bristol's very lucky because it has a lot of green space around it also I, I am one of those people that throws themselves in cold water as often as possible oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> I love that I've started doing that too I love it it's addictive right <laughs> oh, honestly it's it's changed my life I think I started it a few a 
few years ago now, pre-COVID, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, gosh, gosh, the buzz it gives you. And that's like a natural world buzz. Like that is such a pure nature buzz. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, do it safely. But yeah, definitely cold water and just being forced to go out on a dog walk is mm-hmm. is so cool. I feel very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And it, you're you're the second person who's telling me that <laughs> when I ask the questions. <laughs> I think yeah. I'm going to seriously look into uh, getting a dog as well because I've, I've been wanting a dog for a really long time. But um, yeah. <laughs> so pure. <laughs> yeah, I, know. <laughs> I love dogs. <laughs> Amazing. And so the final question I had was um, two recommendations, actually. First one is, um, is there anyone you think I should interview for this podcast? And then the second one is, what's the best book you ever read and why? Oh, yeah, good question. Um, the first one, I might have to have say a bit of a cop-out answer. I don't have anyone specific in mind, but I think getting somebody that is not in this world already, somebody that, you know, whether that's an influencer that's working in like a totally different space or mm-hmm. just like, I don't know, anybody that kind of doesn't know about this and I think have to li- I'd, I mean I'd love to listen to a conversation where there's two people exploring it a little bit more from you know somebody that doesn't know its perspective so much I think that's mm-hmm. really interesting because you know we can get so often lost in this world where we all know the same information and we're having the same conversations but to find somebody that you know is hearing it for the first time might have different perspectives and might ask questions that are really obvious but we've never thought of so mm-hmm. I think someone someone on the podcast who is a little bit um yeah who who doesn't know know this world so much would be really cool to listen mm-hmm. to oh I love I, that yeah I'll look yeah. into that that's great <laughs> and then yeah I can book wise I'll do two very quick ones if that's all right they're, they're yeah. both very different um <laughs> and I'd say one that definitely I can find a tangible link to the environment a bit more is Mountains of the Mind by Robert McFarlane mm-hmm. and that's a book that looks at how the human human's fascination with mountains has evolved and changed over time and it's interesting it says that only a matter of hundreds of years ago you know we found mountains to be a pain they were a scar in the landscape you know people had to travel around them they couldn't get over them you know they were hard they broke up communities and you couldn't grow things on them and now we've evolved to have this fascination with wanting to climb them and summit them and I think what's really interesting about that is how the natural our connection to the natural world has evolved over time and mm-hmm. really looking back to that and thinking okay how did we feel about mountains 200 years ago and how has it changed and you know our love for them now can mm-hmm. we do the same for the natural world um and my second more rogue one but I I've, I apply it in life generally is um period power by Maisie Hill and uh-huh. I think the people who have periods I think it's an amazing book to read mm-hmm. it, t- it kind of helps you combat your monthly cycles and I think if more people who have periods and menstruate read that book honestly we will we will conquer the world because <laughs> it teaches you just how through the month like things change and just I think it's really important because you know like we are very complex people and I think it's exciting to kind of think about how we feel differently from day to day and really harness that and I think 
Um, it's something we don't get taught about enough. And it was just a really eye-opening book and has kind of changed my perspective on a lot of things. So yeah, bit of a rogue one there. <laughs> <laughs> no, love it. Amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna look into it for sure. It sounds it sounds wonderful. <laughs> Great. Well, that's it uh, from my side. Thank you so much, uh, Annie. That was such a great conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been so nice to catch up again and just, yeah, chat about this stuff. <laughs> Likewise. Well, um, enjoy the rest of your day and see you super soon. See you soon. Thank you, listeners. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more information from Annie and resources for you to explore. You can also follow us on Instagram at Why We Care Podcast for all updates, more stories and ways for you to take action. And if you want to help the podcast, I would be super grateful if you could leave a little review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or maybe share it with a friend who you think might like it. Thank you so, so much in advance and see you next week. Thank you for caring and sending you lots of love.